as artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing. They're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is supported by Trustonomy, an original podcast from OneTrust. Every good relationship you have, personal or business, it involves trust. But we all know that trust doesn't just happen, right? We've all lost trust in a friend or a brand or a product. Trustonomy is a new podcast that looks at true stories from the past to understand how trust works and what makes it stronger and how to rebuild it when it's broken. Now, you know, I'm a sucker for a good podcast that weaves historical stories and relates it to what's happening today. So I thoroughly enjoyed this Trustonomy episode and recommend that you check that out as well. Search for Trustonomy in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Many thanks to the OneTrust team for their support. The internet, it's its a wild place. Yeah, yeah, it definitely can be. And today we're going to explore how it's evolved to both democratize access to information, leading to incredible breakthroughs, and be a platform for spreading mass misinformation at rates and scales like we've never seen before. You mean the U.S. bacon reserves haven't hit a 50-year low? Nope, nope. And what about Yoko Ono? Yoko Ono actually didn't have an affair with Hillary Clinton in the 1970s? No, no, I'm I'm afraid not. What about garlic? Does garlic <laughs> cure the coronavirus? No, no, definitely not. But do you know what actually does help to prevent the spread of it? The mRNA vaccine developed in part because of the information that was shared and distributed online to thousands of labs just days after the official confirmation of the existence of the coronavirus. Well, I am ready to dive in. All right, let's do it. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. 
Rocket Ship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. So the internet has both helped spread mass misinformation about the coronavirus, and it's actually helped to develop a cure for it. So let's go back to the beginning of the internet to understand why it was developed in the first place. Okay, so computer science was an emerging discipline in the late 1950s that began to consider time sharing between computers users, and later the possibility of achieving this over wide area networks. Independently, Paul Barron proposed a distributed network based on data in message blocks in the early 1960s, and Donald Davies conceived of packet switching in 1965 at the National Physical Laboratory, or NPL as it's known. And he proposed building a national commercial data-wide network in the UK. Yeah, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, or ARPA, uh, of the U.S. Department of Defense, they awarded contracts in 1969 for development of the ARPANET project, directed by Robert Taylor and managed by Lawrence Roberts. Now, ARPANET adopted the packet switching technology that was proposed by Davies and Barron, underpinned by mathematical work in the early 1970s by Leonard Kleinrock at UCLA. The network was built by Raytheon BBN Technologies, originally Bolt, Baranac, and Newman Inc., an American research and development company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now, Raytheon BBN Technologies has its own fascinating history, but the important point in this history is that the early 1980s, the National Science Foundation, or NSF, they funded national supercomputing centers at several universities in the U.S. And in 1986, they provided interconnectivity with the NSFNet project. This created network access to these supercomputer sites for research and academic organizations in the U.S. So it's safe to say that one of the initial use cases for the Internet was to share information amongst academic organizations. We probably could have just said that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, folks listening, they want to know the nitty-gritty details, don't you think? Like, I bet a bunch of them are Googling Raytheon BBN Technologies and the NSFNet project right now instead of, I don't know, working? Or driving? Well, yeah, hopefully not driving. <laughs> if you're doing that, Google it later in that case. Okay, so the positive side of this amazing technology that we call the Internet is exemplified when the SARS-CoV-2 genetic sequences were released by the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention via GISAID in January 2020. GISAID, the Global Initiative on Sharing Avian Influenza Data, is a global science initiative and primary source established in 2008 that provides open access to genomic data of influenza viruses and the coronavirus responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic. On January 10th, 2020, the first whole genome sequences of SARS-CoV-2 were made available on GISAID, which enabled global responses to the pandemic. And this is where Urshayan, the founder of BioNTech, who eventually created what is known as the Pfizer vaccine, acquired the genome sequence and decided to halt all projects for his team to focus on a vaccine, as he was convinced that this was going to spread globally. We called our uh, development program for a COVID-19 vaccine project Lightspeed because you can't go faster than light. And uh, this was what we aimed for. This journey started in January this year and was devoted 
to the development of a uh, well-tolerated and effective COVID-19 vaccine following the highest scientific and ethical standards. And here's Urshayan on the initial steps they took. The technology behind this vaccine, the messenger RNA technology, and the vaccine candidates have been have been uh, developed in, in Germany. So we started this project in, in January uh, 2020, uh, uh, identified um, more than or started with more than 20 ca- candidates. Those 20 candidates were eventually whittled down to a handful of the most promising options, with vaccine BNT162B2 being the front runner. As we know, those trials eventually produced a successful vaccine in record time. On December 2nd, 2020, after the review of those trials, the UK was the first country to approve this vaccine. Here's Matthew Hancock, the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, speaking in Parliament. Uh, Today marks a new chapter in our fight against this virus. Ever since the pandemic hit our shores almost a year ago, we have known that a vaccine would be critical to set us free. Any vaccine must go through a rigorous process of clinical trials involving thousands of people and extensive independent scrutiny from the MHRA, one of the world's most respected medical regulators. Today, I'm delighted to inform the House that the MHRA has issued the clinical authorization of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. This is a monumental step forward. It's no longer if there's going to be a vaccine, it's when. In our battle against the virus, help is on its way. The UK is the first country in the world to have a clinically approved coronavirus vaccine for supply. And now our task is to make use of the fruits of this scientific endeavor to save lives. And then, about 10 days later, the U.S. announced its approval of the Pfizer vaccine. We are near the end, what has been truly a year unlike any other in modern times. While this year has been marked by tragedy, sadness, and sacrifice, it is also a year that has generated unparalleled scientific achievement that will resonate for many future generations. Scientific processes for medical product development, including vaccines, traditionally take years. What we have seen this year is a historic partnership among the private sector, academic researchers, and the federal government to find efficiencies in our scientific processes, as well as the dedication of time and energy toward a common goal. And now the country gets ready to distribute the vaccine to millions of people. Hey, good morning, Martha. You could argue this moment has been nine months in the making. Take a look at the loading dock behind me here. Just moments ago, we saw some of the first trucks loaded up with the vaccine leaving this dock. It's a huge step that could help to eventually get the pandemic under control. Now, I want you to take a look at some of these images. After getting that emergency use authorization from the FDA, the vials filled with the life-saving vaccine began their journey from the Pfizer facility here to states across the country. Now, from ultra-cold freezers to specially designed boxes to keep those cold temperatures, each box can hold about 5,000 doses. Now, the boxes are then loaded onto trucks, taking that precious cargo to area airports. Now, this initial batch of the vaccine consists of some 2.9 million doses. U.S. Marshals, as we witnessed there, Martha, were escorting those trucks as they head to the airports. Pfizer says they will be working 24-7 into they get that entire first batch out of here. Absolutely incredible. Hailed as the dream team, Turiji and Shahin hope the vaccine will get the green light from regulators this month. 
so they can start producing up to 1.3 billion doses in collaboration with American pharmaceutical giant Pfizer by the end of next year. The Turkish-German couple say they will price the vaccine below market rates to ensure everyone gets access. So this is why we need and love the Internet. It's the best parts of humanity on display. One country releases the genetic sequence of a virus that's spreading globally, and scientists around the world get to work creating a never-before-created vaccine using technology that has never been used to produce a vaccine before. These stories have me so hopeful for our future. But, and there's always a but, then came the misinformation. So how, when we have a wealth of knowledge at our fingertips, did the internet become such a driver of misinformation? Now that's a big question, and one we probably can't answer fully right here in this podcast, but hey, let's try, right after a quick break. So the history of misinformation or disinformation is really a part of the history of mass communication. But the internet has accelerated this to the point where we can no longer ignore its impacts as these once sensational stories have made it far into the mainstream psyche. That's right. The business of fake news has been around for hundreds of years. In the 1890s, for instance, rival newspaper publishers Joseph Pulitzer and William Hearst competed over audiences through sensationalism and reporting rumors as if they were facts, a practice that became known at the time as yellow journalism. Their incredulous news played a role in leading the U.S. into the Spanish-American War of 1898, in fact, right? That war grew out of U.S. interest for a fight for the revolution between the Spanish military and citizens of their Cuban colony. American newspapers then fanned the flame by fabricating atrocities, which then justified intervention in a number of Spanish colonies worldwide. Now, eventually, there was a backlash against the lack of journalistic integrity. The public demanded more objective and reliable news sources, which created a niche that the New York Times was established to fill at the turn of the 20th century. Yellow journalism became less common. That is, until the rise of web-based news brought it all back in full force. Now, before the embarrassment that was our 45th president overused the term fake news to describe anyone who rightfully criticized his own incompetence, Hillary Clinton was one of the first to use the phrase in a speech dating back to December 2016, where she warned listeners about the dangers of misinformation spreading online. Let me just mention briefly one thread in particular that should concern all Americans Democrats, Republicans, and independents alike, especially those who serve in our Congress. The epidemic of malicious fake news and false propaganda that flooded social media over the past year, it's now clear that so-called fake news can have real-world consequences. This isn't about politics or partisanship. Lives are at risk. Lives of ordinary people just trying to go about their days to do their jobs, contribute to their communities. It's a danger that must be addressed, and addressed quickly. Bipartisan legislation is making its way through Congress to boost the government's response to foreign propaganda, and Silicon Valley is starting to grapple with the challenge and threat of fake news. It's imperative that leaders in both the private sector and the public sector step up to protect our democracy and innocent lives. But the government didn't act quickly, and social media companies have done very little to curb the rampant spread of misinformation. 
mainly because it goes against their business model. Facebook and many others, they've figured out that articles that produce a negative emotional reaction will keep people on the site longer, which means more advertising money for them. Now, we saw the real-world effects of an event like Pizzagate, right, where a rumor that sex slaves were being held under a Washington pizza restaurant actually led a man to enter the busy, family-friendly restaurant with a rifle. Now, thankfully, nobody was injured, and the man was arrested and actually sentenced to four years in jail. But this illustrated how these online rumors they can have real-world consequences. And this brings us back to the COVID-19 vaccine. The same incredible technology that helped scientists communicate instantly across the globe also helped to spread misinformation about that very vaccine that was produced to save lives. And this wasn't just a couple of articles. Some of the information that I think had been discussed on your podcast related to EMF frequencies, that was a thought. And, and it was you, because now, because right now that? we're all kind of um, hypothesizing. I mean, what is it that's actually being transmitted that's causing all of these things? Is it a combination of the protein, which now we're finding has a metal attached to it? I'm sure you've seen the pictures all over the internet of people who've had these shots and now they're magnetized. They can put a key on their forehead, it sticks. They can put spoons and forks all over them and they can stick because now we think that there's a metal piece to that. There's been people who've long suspected that there was some sort of an interface, yet to be defined, an interface between what's being injected in these shots and all of the 5G towers. Not proven yet, but we're trying to figure out what is it that's being transmitted to these unvaccinated people that are causing health problems. Yes, vaccines do harm people. By the way, so I just found out something when I was on lunch and I wanted to show it to you. We were talking about Dr. Tenpenny's testimony about magnetic vaccine crystals. So this is what I found out. So I have a key and a bobby pin here. Explain to me why the key sticks to me. It sticks to my neck too. I got this. Yeah, so if somebody can explain this, that would be great. That was Dr. Sherry Tenpenny and Joanna Overholt speaking to the Ohio House Health Committee about COVID-19 vaccines magnetizing the body. Yes, that's the famous clip where Jenna Overholt is saying that a key is magnetically sticking to her body, but the key and then like bobby pins, they just keep falling off. And the conspiracies quickly made it into the mainstream media and even the White House. So supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And I think you said that has him in check, but you're gonna test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're gonna test that too. Sounds interesting. Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs so it'd be interesting to check that so that you're gonna have to use medical doctors with but it sounds it sounds interesting to me every day there is new misinformation being pumped into facebook instagram tiktok now, it's clear who loses from this type of health misinformation. I mean, mothers lose children after seeking advice in Facebook free birth groups. Measles breaks out in anti-vax communities. Children with autism are poisoned from being fed bleach, marketed as a miracle cure. And people die from misleading hope about a fake COVID-19 cure. <coughs> Ivermectin. 
<laughs> yeah. Isn't it strange that the same people who reject the COVID-19 vaccine are okay taking a horse dewormer? Yeah, I mean, at this time, it's a cult, right? It's all become an identity. It's kind of beyond reason. But who benefits from this misinformation, and why do we see it spreading so rampantly? So let's start with the second part of your question there first. Bad actors intending to spread problematic content can easily capitalize on an information ecosystem full of panicked information seekers, especially during a health crisis like we we saw in the last year. For example, the constant stream of breaking news during the first few weeks of this pandemic created novel keyword searches and search engine data voids that they wanted to be filled, but there was no information or at least reliable information to do so at the time. So because good information could take a while to fact check and even develop, those voids were filled by literally people just making things up. And there's a business to those eyeballs that the internet makes really easy to capitalize on. Google's display ad network allows for these sites to easily monetize the millions of eyeballs searching for answers, especially at an unprecedented time like we're seeing during this ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And the thing is, it doesn't matter if that eyeball believes what they're reading or if they're reading it in disbelief. If that article is being talked about, it doesn't matter whether it's positive or negative light. It's making money. And months and months went by with no vaccine. So it was easy for grifters to step in and fill the void and try to take advantage of a public that was starving for a cure, such as Sanofi, the makers of hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malaria drug, which was proven to have no effect on preventing or minimizing the effects of COVID-19, despite rumors making it all the way up to our grifter-in-chief at the time, who continued to push the drug. Two questions quickly. Uh, first, can you clarify your position on the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine after you retweeted a video uh, making claims that it well, is that was, effective? I wasn't making claims. The, the recommendations of many other peoples and people, including doctors, uh, many doctors think it is extremely successful. The hydroxychloroquine, uh, coupled with the zinc and perhaps the zithromycin, but many doctors think it's extremely good, and some people don't. Some people, I think, it's become very political. Uh, I happen to believe in it. I would take it. I, as you know, I took it for a 14-day period, uh, and uh, I'm here, right? I'm here. So panicked information seekers are more likely to consume that problematic information at a faster rate and higher volume rather than wait in uncertainty. Grifters and snake oil sales folks are eager to take advantage of this uncertainty and are really the front line here. This is how an information ecosystem online is built to further undermine our collective trust in health experts and institutions. And this triggers a larger destabilization of health and science institutions, which we're undeniably seeing. But beyond the grifters and the snake oil sales folks, we have a government who has aided and embedded the worst COVID-19 outbreak globally, who has a vested interest in sowing distrust in health organizations in order to save face. A public too fragmented to collectively trust health experts can't hold an administration accountable for its lies. Now those snake oil salesmen, they're profiting <laughs> now, but the uncertainty sowed today paves the way for an oppressive power to take advantage of a fragmented society much more vulnerable to misinformation in the future. So what comes next? That after a quick break. So we started with the internet playing a key part in facilitating communication that allowed the genetic sequence of the novel coronavirus to be broadcast around the globe so scientists could begin working on a vaccine. We ended with the misinformation that rapidly spread across the world about that very vaccine. 
So where do we go from here? Is it even possible to rein in misinformation online? Will we see a swing back to the well-researched and verified news, just like in the late 1800s after the rise of yellow journalism? Well, according to the American Psychological Association, research backs several methods of countering misinformation. One is to debunk incorrect information after it's spread. Much more effective, though, is inoculating people against the fake news before they're exposed, a strategy known as pre-bunking. It's kind of like a vaccine, exposing people to a small dose of misinformation and explaining to them how it might be misleading. And then if they encounter that information later, it no longer sticks. Now, that's best achieved by warning people that a specific piece of information is false and explaining why a source might lie or be misinformed about it before they encounter the information organically, which in testing can neutralize misinformation on climate change, vaccines, and other issues. Unfortunately, defenses to techniques such as this have already been built into the misinformation campaigns themselves, as they're billed as having done their own research, generally with some unorthodox method, or that, you know, insert trusted body on topic isn't to be trusted, so you should believe yourself instead. Yeah, unorthodox, that's a kind way to put it. I mean, <laughs> Googling InfoWars articles, you know, about a topic, it, it hardly counts as an unorthodox method, right? <laughs> it's true, it's true. And even if these techniques could work, they need buy-in from the platforms where misinformation is spreading rampantly. And that buy-in often goes against the business interests of those very platforms. Now, during the 2020 presidential election, Twitter flagged tweets that contain misleading information about election results, a form of pre-bunking. And in December, Facebook announced it would begin removing posts with false claims about the COVID-19 vaccines. In a reversal from previous stances, multiple social media companies suspended or banned 45 from their platforms for inciting violence after the U.S. Capitol riot on January 6th. This was an effort to stop the certification of the electoral vote in the 2020 presidential election. And this very act resulted in Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, to testify in front of Congress. As part of his statement before the hearing began, he had this to say about the actions they took. We believe the best way to face a big new challenge is through narrowing the problem to have the greatest impact. Disinformation is a broad concept. We needed to focus our approach on where we saw the greatest risk if we hope to have any impact at all. So we chose to focus on disinformation leading to offline harm in three categories to start. Manipulated media, public health, and civic integrity. Many of you will have strong opinions on how effective we are in this work. Some of you will say we're doing too much and removing free speech rights. Some of you will say we're not doing enough and end up causing more harm. Both points of view are reasonable and worth exploring. If we woke up tomorrow and decided to stop moderating content, we'd end up with a service very few people or advertisers would want to use. Ultimately, we're running a business and a business wants to grow the number of customers it serves. Enforcing policy is a business decision. Different businesses and services will have different policies, some more liberal than others. And we believe it's critical this variety continues to exist. Forcing every business to behave the same reduces innovation and individual choice and diminishes free marketplace ideals. If instead we woke up tomorrow and decided to ask the government to tell us what content to take down or leave up, we may end up with a service that couldn't be used to question the government. This is a reality in many countries today and is against the right of an individual. This would also have the effect of putting enormous resource requirements on businesses and services, which would further entrench only those who are able to afford it. Smaller businesses would not be able to compete 
and all activity would be centralized into very few businesses. Okay, so Jack makes some good points here. They're running a business, and it shouldn't be the governments that have a say in what can and can't be said on any given platform. But free speech is always used as a get-out-of-jail-free card in these discussions. Like, anyone should be able to just make up and knowingly spread false information, even with deadly consequences. And it's the reader's job to judge in each instance what to trust and what not to. The problem is, these aren't just people's opinions being shared. Like, Sally doesn't like the vaccine and doesn't think it's safe. Well, Thank you, Sally. But these are stories that are disguised as factual, often from fake newspapers with names like the Ohio Times and the Surrey Daily, or they're backed up by big PR dollars and teams who are purposely crafting hundreds of stories to build disingenuously false narrative that has just enough truth or just enough of the elements that people want to believe that they go along with it. And part of this isn't even the information itself anymore. It's all wrapped up in the social identity of individuals that even if they don't believe it, they spread it because it's another way of displaying their allegiance to a side. I mean, Captain Bonespurs himself received the vaccine while the entire Republican media ecosystem discouraged its viewers to get it, and it continued to spread myths and disinformation about its safety. So here we are. Again, we don't have the answers here. But we know there is a massive problem, and the fake information can be produced and spread much faster than real information. And as long as there's an audience for it, the internet provides a business model for its monetization. But the truth is, these stories, because of their massive reach, they now have devastating consequences. Here's a sobering stanza from an article published in early September of 2021 about the continuing coronavirus pandemic. More than 650,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 as of Wednesday. Another jarring milestone in a pandemic that's claimed more than 1,000 U.S. lives per day on average, but some states have sustained especially large death tolls. And this is where we'll leave this episode. While the internet allows us to communicate globally in real time, spreading essential information around the world in seconds, allowing us to develop a vaccine for COVID-19 in record time, it also helps spread misinformation about that very vaccine, false information that's preventing almost 30% of the population in the U.S. from receiving that vaccine. And because of this ongoing campaign against the vaccine, we now have over 650,000 deaths because of COVID-19. Many of these are preventable, as over 95% of patients now being hospitalized are unvaccinated, according to a Science News article from August 31st of this year. So misinformation, it's a huge problem that we need to solve. While we don't have a clear path forward at the moment, it's important work for us as a society to tackle together, on and offline. We'll see you next week for another installment of Season 11 from Rocketship.fm Antitrust. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network. And if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.